0: You're listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts and then join one of the members of the bad book club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book and all things really. So without further ado, let's get into
1: chapter five, how spiritual vagabonds are born. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. 1 Samuel 24, 6-7 In the last chapter, we saw how David was mistreated by the man he had hoped would be his father. David kept trying to understand where he had gone wrong. What had he done to turn Saul's heart against him, and how could he win it back? he proved his loyalty by sparing Saul's life even though Saul aggressively pursued his
0: so chapter 5 opens with four paragraphs and in a stunning display of fictional artistry all four of them are questionable because one was Saul really the man David had hoped would be his father David had a father, and Saul was his father-in-law all that time he was on the run, a fun fact John Bevere didn't even mention because that would have required mentioning a woman, and that seems to be an offense to JB at all times. Uh, Two, was David really perplexed as to where he went wrong? I mean, he knew he had been anointed king of a kingdom of a man we established was not his father, so three, what had he done to turn Saul's heart against him, and how could he turn it back? Please see number two, and he probably couldn't. And four, proving his loyalty by sparing Saul's life, is that loyalty? Does John Bevere know what loyalty means? Does John Bevere know what any words mean? As you probably know by now, I think the title of this book is absolute nonsense, but I did hear an explanation that does make sense of it, and I promised you in the last episode that I would share it with you, so, Kobus, take it away.
2: Hi, I'm from South Africa. I am a white man. I'm Afrikaans. Those are the people that are descended from the Dutch and we, my people created the that So I want to tell you, I'm listening to the Bait of Satan thing. And it, the title makes sense, and I'll tell you why. As Afrikaners, are like, sort of national identity, if you will, I mean, it, uh, is that we are people that get shit done. Like, there's a big saying, a plan, which means, like, a farmer makes a plan. And so as white men in that thing, the most offensive thing and the thing that I've been working through is, like, pathetic people so and the thing is if you believe that we are all wretches anyway you know like at at our basic need we are just Mm -hmm. sinful useless creatures which you know they clearly do then it makes sense because you know we we are just so pathetic that we will be all we want to do is be offended all the day and and blame everybody else for our own wretchedness so therefore we are susceptible to this bait of Satan. We want to be offended. It is attractive to us because we are most wretched. We, we, we are so pathetic and so that that we, we will be tempted by this offense because that is what we want. We want to be lured into. So that, that's, that's why it makes sense to him. <laughs> it doesn't make sense if you think that people are not shit But if you think, then yeah, it does make sense.
0: Thank you, Cobus. So. There you go. There is a world in which the stupid-ass title of this book does make sense, and surprise, surprise, it is a very dark world, and also a very white male world. And John Bevere's bummer of an economy, the worst, most pathetic type of person, like Cobus said, is someone looking for pity, to blame whatever is wrong with them on what has happened to them, but that's only pathetic if you are someone, like John Bevere, who hasn't really had many obstacles, and has actually been an obstacle, historically, and in his own personal practice. But this whole thing immediately falls apart as soon as you try to apply it to almost any other people group. And it makes God look crazy at best and just downright awful at worst. Because what was the grand plan with slavery? And am I really to believe that my black enslaved ancestors are just as likely, or maybe even more likely, to be in hell for being offended by my white slaveholding ancestors than those white devils were for being offensive? I mean, it's possible, but that god is not good, so whatever, JB. Anyway think on those things as we journey deeper into the world's worst game of word jumanji and i do need to add some content warnings for mentions of sexual assault and just general bad language because john bevere is fucking enraging with book club member number five faye hi
3: i'm faye i don't go by christian labels anymore I don't go by a lot of labels anymore, but I'm happy to be here.
0: Happy to have you here, and very sorry to have put you through this. Thank
3: you. I accept your apology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Happy you agreed to this torture. So, Bait of Satan. Where, when, how did you first become aware of this book?
3: I don't even know. I loved Lisa Bevere so much, with my whole heart. She was, like, the only Christian author that I could handle. I felt like a lot of her stuff really helped me a lot and was very healing for me at the time. And now I see a lot of merit in a lot of her stuff. Um, Some of her stuff is very feministic and very progressive, and then it also kind of keeps women in a very subordinate position. So it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back a little bit. So I think, I'm sure I heard of John through her, but I definitely, whenever I saw and heard of The Bait of Satan, I I tuned it out. There's no way that that, like, was a book that I picked up and, like, wanted to know more about. I think that it was just, like, very extreme, and I didn't want anything to do with it. So that's my interaction with that book until now. (laughs) Read a whole chapter. Also, (laughs) I remember listening to their podcast, the Bevers have a podcast, and they talk over each other a lot, but she especially talks over him. Pretty much, like, anytime he starts talking, she'll interrupt him, and that really turned me off to her. I just felt like she was very controlling, and, like, he would try to say something nice to her. He'll, like, greet her, because I think they, like, you know, they work in, like, separate rooms or separate buildings, and then they'll come together to do the podcast, and, He's, like, all happy and excited to see his hot wife. And and she just doesn't say hi to him, even. <laughs> like, he's like, babe, it's great to see you. And she just keeps, she plows through. So, so that's their marriage. And that really, really made me question their relationship and like the, the level of respect between the two of them. And I kind of... I mean, topically, too. I think I was, like... I don't get what the big deal is about a lot of this stuff. And their short podcasts are, like, 10 to 20 minutes. But I think I said goodbye to that per- pretty early on and, like, kind of stopped reading her stuff and and then saw in 2016 who she was promoting and supporting on social media and wanted nothing to do with her anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the same with him. Like, and I... I just looked into this stuff a little bit too to to be able to like remember correctly um, for the sake of this podcast and they're definitely still those people. So To be clear, here I we are. did
0: not ask her to do any extra bevere work to do that on her own.
3: <laughs> I did my research. <laughs> it was soul sucking, but I did it.
0: Because yes, <laughs> they they definitely have podcasts and
3: a lot of stuff.
0: I had purposely kind of, like, I never like to really deal with people as, like, individuals. It's not about you. It's about the system, and it's about the things you're, you're doing. So I hadn't looked at John Bevere and I'm like, I hope I would assume the best of him and hope that he's kind of let this book quietly die. Like, surely, <laughs> surely he's not still out here.
3: No, because we're in the end times, and it's a word for today.
0: Yeah, so I was hoping... No, surely he's not still saying this. Mm-hmm. But John Bevere is still out promoting yeah. this book and giving yeah. this sermon. So.
3: Yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago, or like six weeks ago, that they had this as a topic on their podcast. It's very current for them. And he he mentioned doing a little book club, a little group, and they have it. They have like an app now where they have their books and audiobooks and re- all these resources. And they have like these groups. But. Um, you have to like create your own group and then you can use their platform as like a discussion guide and they have six to ten little videos about their books and their chapters to like go deeper into those topics. Well
0: so now this this is gonna become a discussion group. So please use this podcast to get over the bait of Satan because this book belongs in the garbage and I would very much like to send all copies of it there.
3: So I I agree. He's sold over I wanna say two million. I wrote it down. <sighs> two million copies in over a hundred languages. Gotta get that word of God out. Ugh. Yeah. Okay.
0: So so you had never read this book before?
3: Nope. I don't think I even like picked it up. So I went through this phase of like going from Catholicism to non-denominational Christianity I was duped but I went through this huge phase of like going into bookstores I love books and I would go into bookstores and just like scour every single book on the shelf and I was trying to kind of get a feel for what the themes like what the current themes were and you know I noticed like a difference in like the different kind of bookstores and Like, one of them might have, like, they would, it's like they would all carry C.S. Lewis, but one of them would do, like, the screw tape letters and uh, the problem of pain, and then, like, another one would have, like, a few different illustrated copies of, like, the Chronicles of Narnia. So there was, like, this difference between the different, like, I don't know, like, the different, like, sects of non-denominational Christianity, Um, the different denominations, you know, of non-denominationalism. And so I, I just, I don't even really remember coming across that book. I think I just truly overlooked it. So just picking it up now and remembering my experience with Lisa and how I absolutely revered her and want, I wanted to be like her personal assistant. I, was just like the biggest fan of her. And um, I do remember thinking like anytime I heard him speak, it just kind of didn't land. Like it's a lot of fluff. It's honestly a lot of fluff. And so that was definitely my experience reading this chapter. It's chapter five, How Spiritual Vagabonds Are Born. And we can start there (laughs) because the title doesn't even make sense. I don't even know how to pick it apart because it just doesn't make any sense how... Spiritual vagabonds are born. Um, We're already born, and then somehow his argument is that we turn into spiritual vagabonds, and it's by becoming offended, by being legitimately hurt, and leaving church. And that's how we become spiritual vagabonds. Um, I don't know what, what the process of being born is in there. Like, if we're already technically born... Sinners, and then we get saved by grace through faith, and Jesus keeps us in his care. And then we can't be born again as a spiritual vagabond.
0: So you're born again, again,
3: yeah, but like the bad way, like you go backwards. Or unborn? Are you unborn? You become the unborn and the undead, which might be where we are, and I'm okay with that. But I think a vagabond is like a restless wanderer. I'm not wandering and I'm not restless. I've come to peace with like not knowing and like I've let it go so I'm not like trying to find my place I'm happy where I'm at so his theory I'm gonna say does not really hold any kind of water it makes no sense so I asked Janice to to, I was like does he even like define what offense is in this whole shebang and sure enough he does kind of kind of Kind of, And I'm not really sure what I got out of that or how I could apply it to the chapter that I read. So again, theory doesn't exactly hold water. But you can always just say the Holy Spirit told you and sell two million copies of your book.
0: Yeah. What did I circle here? I mean, he talks a lot about this instance he had where he sound like he was under a bad leader mm-hmm. and had thoughts about it and wanted to leave. And- he did
3: leave yeah and then he left and then he left and then he like felt bad about it right which like i don't know if like the holy spirit was really like oh john you should not have left that bad situation you need to go back but then i think about hagar and god being like oh you're all alone in the desert with your baby like go back to your abusive master Go back Which to your is abusive whole, situation.
0: It's a whole other conversation. Yeah. As far as like reading reading the Bible and what we're supposed to be taking from these stories. So he said, In the midst of a very trying circumstance, one day the Lord spoke to me through a scripture verse and said, This is the way I want you to leave a church. And then for you should go out with joy and be let out with peace. And then Yeah, so I circled you and I'm like, You, John. Yeah. You. It may well be that the Lord spoke that to you. Yeah. But sure. to put it in a book <laughs> and prescribe it for everybody, yeah
3: that's a problem. Yeah, true.
0: Yeah, so then that goes back to my whole thoughts of just the Bible and how we've been taught to read it. Mm-hmm. We don't come to the Bible with, like, no, no viewpoint already. It's like we're usually being told these stories and told what we're supposed to think about them. Right. What if it is just that these people were just telling these stories? and we've gone to the extreme well this is what happened in this situation and this is the conclusion they came to so this is the conclusion we're all supposed to come to Yeah. couldn't it just be that these were ancient people trying to figure out how the world works and they came to some bad conclusions, they're not even conclusions like we put our views on this and we've said oh this is what happened this is how this went, this is how every story like this is supposed to go Yeah.
3: so I actually grew up like that and um, believed that You know, that especially the Old Testament, and there was a focus on, like, you know, the Old Testament is different, but that, like, this is people trying to make sense of something that's a mystery, and then Jesus came and, like, set us straight, and now we have the Holy Spirit to guide us. But the Bevere's have this, like, really specific kind of sect of word faith. I don't know if they would even call it word faith, but it's definitely, like, it's a branch of that. If anyone knows what that is, it's just basically this belief that you can speak the word of God in faith and it's truth. And so I think that that has turned into, as we see in this book and the example of even just our podcast and everything, that like they've veered this belief into like thinking that you can speak something and that makes it true, which is very dangerous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what are some things that stood out to you? Good, bad,
3: indifferent. This might come as a surprise, but I think that they are, I think that they're fat shamers. This, <laughs> I this saw is that. This like, kind of off topic, but like. I circled that. But Lisa has this book called, like, You Are Not What You Weigh. And I read about half of it, I think. Maybe like a third of it. And like put it down and I was kind of like, okay, God. What do I do with this? because she actually, and then <laughs> I did my research. she she's on like it's supernatural with Sid Roth. and she talks about how God supernaturally healed her eating disorder. and yeah, it's um it's not good. It's I think that the heart behind it is definitely like this is a problem, and we need to view ourselves in like perfect love the way that God views us, but She says that the Holy Spirit told her what her ideal weight should be and gave her a number, a number on the scale, and that she fasted for, like, three days. And she does say that, like, she doesn't believe that the Holy Spirit would have told her to fast if she were still struggling with anorexia. But it's so problematic because it's definitely another example of, like, taking this thing that she felt like she heard from God for herself and, like, prescribing it. And I had a huge problem with her even, like, telling the reader her height and her weight and, like, what God told her she should weigh. And then I was, like, I don't agree with, I have to say, like, I don't agree with, like, this is a disclaimer, the BMI scale, like, do what you will with it, but it's not law. But if you take her height and the weight that the Holy Spirit told her she should be, it's underweight. So there's this, like, perfectionism in Christianity. There's, like, this, you know, ideal. Skinny and white body that everyone is supposed to be, and I feel like that book just like reiterates and promotes that in a really unhealthy way. And I, I see the good behind it. I see like kind of her. I, I want to assume like her intentions were good, but like it it gets into like this really weird, ugly area really fast. And then then <laughs> John like uses this example of like how sinful a pastor is because he's overweight, like oh, my God, like, oh, proof, like, now I can see it, and now I can, like, I can picture this obese pastor, he's okay. so sinful, like, what a yeah. bad person, he's so abusive, but God calls me to stay under his leadership because he put him in authority, so there's a, there's a lot of um, wishy-washiness, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that can arise reading any of this stuff because it doesn't add up,
0: it really doesn't. But
3: that definitely stood out to me, and it reminded me of Lisa's book, and I thought, well, they definitely have, like, an ideal, and that's kind of their M.O., is, like, teaching everyone how to be the perfect Christian. And that feels, yeah, like, it's icky. It's <laughs> really icky.
0: And then just thinking about, you know, reading the back of his the little blurbs on his book and whatever and his credentials, all he really says is, like, what he's done. So, yeah. oh, I'm offer this many books, and I run the messenger, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, okay, there's nothing. I don't say anything about any schooling, any, any kind of anything. So for these people to be writing these books, covering so many aspects of life, it's like it's not enough, you know, that you're just taking the spiritual principle. But for Lisa Bevere, for you to be writing something about the body.
3: Yeah.
0: Like these people With... just take such liberties. Yeah with deciding what they get to talk about.
3: Yeah, she has no nutritional credentials, no psychology, like, none of that. And and it's, it's so... It's such a misuse of authority. And then I think the other thing that stood out to me is the way that he is, like, so self-promoting. in like, every book that he writes, like, there's, like, a whole preface about how it's... Like someone told him that it was the word of God, and like everybody has to read this, and it's—he's putting himself on the level of like the Bible, the inerrant scriptures, <laughs> and uh, which I could say other things about. But every single chapter begins with someone's like testimony about how the book changed their life, and they're really, again, very watered down and very wishy-washy, and. I see that, like, he's done that in other books. He does that, like, in general. And and it's, like, this... There's, like, an insecurity there where, like, you would not have to self-promote like that if what you were saying held its own authority and were true. It's, like, he needs all of these examples to back him up, and it just comes across as very (laughs) insecure.
0: It is. Like, my thoughts on John Bevere... Still having not done much research, he bumps me out. I'm like, I, he feels like a very sad man to me. His view of God, this is miserable. This is miserable.
3: Yeah, um, I forget what example it was that they gave on their podcast, but it was like he, I think it was that back to that example of when he was upset by a leader and they were both talking about how he fasted and he felt bad and he did all of these things like he was like worshiping and like it feels like a lot of work to like like beat yourself down so that God can like raise you up and that is so abusive and so sick and so sad to me and it just like it it prevents people from developing any kind of agency or self-esteem And so, like, we see, like, these kind of watered-down personalities that are, like, clinging to this message because they've found their identity in it. And then, like, they can't be wrong because that would destroy their identity. So then, of course, there's no accountability.
0: None. And I have one of my notes in here. Why does God need and use bad things to mature us? I just do not understand this view of
3: God. It's a theology I've never agreed with ever. And not only that God like uses these bad things, but like he orchestrates them and creates them on purpose to put you through them, to test you. And I've just always kind of wondered like, okay, God's like strengthening me, but like I wasn't strong enough to like meet the mark on this test, but he's using it to strengthen me. So what? So that I can get hit with like another harder thing and I'm, like, stronger now, so I can I can keep handling more hard shit.
0: Right. Because no, we don't like to go to the extreme of, oh, God is doing this, so God God just allows it. These things he are allows. happening. God allows mm-hmm. it. Who has the more power here? If mm-hmm. you are God and you are good and you can do anything, then it didn't have to be this it way. It didn't have to. You could have said no, and yeah. you didn't.
3: I, I also see time and time again, and I this is, like, Generalizing, but it's also just like a hard line for me that people who are mistreated need comfort and not hard love. They don't need tough love and they don't need to be like toughened up. They need comfort and support and they need security. And when you have this like unpredictable God who might be like throwing these obstacles in your way to like see how you're going to handle them, that just creates so much instability. And, like, how do you, how do you trust that, that deity?
0: And why would you? Yeah, why? And, like, and why does God, God knows everything. You already knew what I was going to do here. Mm-hmm.
3: But it's to show you, Janice. It's so but I didn't want to see. see it. Yeah, it's so that you see what you have in yourself. But, again, for what purpose? To be used for what?
0: And I have found most of us are pretty self-aware mm-hmm. of, of what we're doing wrong. Like we're really good Absolutely. at knowing what we're not good at, yeah. what I'm doing wrong, what I need to work on. So right. I don't God, if you want to make a better use of your time, <laughs> show us the good things. Yeah. Like that's where we're lacking. Yeah. Most of the time. Except except for John Bevere. He only sees the greatness <laughs> within. <laughs> Let me see, when he talks about Samuel and then he has this thing. Children children do not correct fathers, but it is the duty oh. of fathers to train and correct children. And I just would... No!
3: Yeah, no. Ugh.
0: Like, I think this chapter, 4 and 5, like 1 through 3, I was pretty... Oh, you know, this is dumb. But it's nothing new. And then 4 and 5, like, he just turns it up. This is where abuse... It's allowed
3: to it's happen. Literally like apologetics for abuse. It's I found this part where he actually said God puts us in these very uncomfortable crucibles to mature, refine, and strengthen, not to destroy us. So it's like, okay, so we just become like a shell of a person after we're like ripped up by these crucibles that God puts us in. And like they their belief is a hundred percent that God actively does this. Like it's not it's not just like this passive like allowing but they actually really believe that God does this intentionally. And, like, when I read that part about, like, it's not, it's not the child's place to correct the father. Like, well, some fathers are actually really abusive, and it would be in the child's best interest to say no, say, like, this is not okay, I can't let you treat me like this. Because this view just allows people to lack boundaries, like, does not help people of all the energy that they could be spending on writing these books and teaching people, they could be teaching people how to create healthy boundaries. You have to dig really deep to find where they actually say, you know, except in the case of abuse. Because they do say that, which is what I wanted to hear. And I won't be so hard on them now, but they they definitely believe you're always called to forgive. And then supernaturally, God will heal your heart from the pain that was caused, if you forgive the person for offending you or hurting you or abusing you, mistreating you. Those are all the words that they use. But caveat, like if if the person's not repentant, then you don't have to reconcile. Well, here's the thing. Like most, most covert narcissists, like most abusive people, especially covert abusers are very apologetic because they do not like the consequences of their actions. They don't like being called out And so they will profusely apologize. And then it's like this, it's tricky because the expectation then becomes that the the victim forgives and reconciles with this person who's not actually repentant. They just, they're acting remorseful and they're saying that they're sorry. And um, as I've worked with kids for like decades, I have always tried to teach parents like, "Don't, don't make your kid apologize. Like parents are like, oh, go say you're sorry. Like, well, they might not be sorry. Don't tell them to say that they're sorry when they're not sorry. Let's, like, talk about it and, like, let's let the person, the child that was hurt, the child that got bitten, you know, like, let's let them use their words instead of, like, having to hear from the kid that was doing the harm. Like, we just, like, continuously give voice and platform and, like, position to the person that's harmful And so, like, this theology that you need to stay when you're offended, like, it truly perpetuates abuse. And so even though they say, like, we, you know, not in the case of abuse, my question would be, like, well, what do you define as abuse and how do you recognize it? Because you're still promoting covert abuse. And I've had pastors, like, explain examples of abuse, and it looks like black eyes like it looks like you know they they won't help a woman get to safety unless she has sign like physical signs of abuse which like obviously she's going to hide because she's ashamed and and I'm generalizing with gender any any gender can be abusive but like it's so rampant that it's like this repressed Christian male that's like hurting women and it's allowed to happen because of things like this theology that Satan's actual bait, this specific bait of Satan, is offense, as though we're attracted to offense, and we want it. We want it so bad, we're willing to like risk the trap. It. Like I, I love it. I see it just sitting there in that <laughs> trap, and I just need to get I need to get me some offense. Give me that offense, Janice.
0: <laughs> I've got it for you, girl, come and get it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's the same as like, I could call out names, but it's the same as like that church that I went to where the person taking everyone's money was the one leading the collection and reminding everyone every single week, every single sermon, don't leave offended. And I'm like, who is leaving offended? Because what I see, what I see in like the deconstruction community, everyone that I've talked to, I like I don't have an example of anyone that left offended. I have examples of people who were led out by peace because they had anxiety staying in, and what brought them peace was leaving. So, there you go, John Bevere. Like we all left, not offended. We left. We were led by peace.
0: And I will say, I haven't, again, Faye on her own accord, subjected herself to recent episodes of their podcast and whatnot. So she heard their caveats on abuse. I have not as yet actually seen that in this
3: book. Yeah. So that is
0: later seasoning that they've given that I'm sure came out of response.
3: Probably, yeah. To this book. it's also Lisa. You know, it's also the fact that she's heard and spoken to and, like, you know, ministered to, like, thousands of women and and that's the position that they've put her in like she's allowed to teach but only only to the women technically
0: yeah yeah like this book is very very male
3: yeah it's not talking to us no
0: (laughs) not at all except to say sit there and take it
3: you you better shut your
0: mouth you picked up that offense to eat it now choke on it (laughs) (laughs) you love it so much But this chapter, it's been interesting, because these chapters, they're randomly assigned.
3: Mm -hmm. But this
0: one talks a lot about plants. Mm
3: -hmm. Let's talk about plants. So, I love that verse so much. You don't even know what's coming to you, James. I don't. So, uh, yeah, that church that we went to loved this verse. Stay stay planted. So the verses, like, I'll use the one that is in this book. This chapter is Psalm 92, 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. The emphasis is on planted and shall flourish. And there's, like, it's, like, Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree. Planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Boom, right there. If you are not prospering, you must not be staying planted. You are not drinking from the river. You're not in your word. This is like a very works-based theology um, that, like, it's very focused on the law and... The Bible that I read told me that Jesus fulfilled the law. So this is not about it's no longer at least about me doing all of this work to be approved and like and to get to like earn prosperity. And so right there the whole thing again doesn't hold water. Falls through. But my story is that this verse was like absolutely weaponized against me. I was in an extremely abusive situation. I was in leadership, and I was reporting abuse. And I had someone on my team that was abusing me. I had, like, a stalker, and I was being counseled to call this person regularly, pray for them, like, hear about all of the sad stuff that's going on in their life, and, like, basically pity them and support them through their problems. And this person was creeping out multiple women some of them are my friends and some of them just knew that like I was his team leader and I had so many women coming to me telling me that he was bothering them and wouldn't leave him alone and so I was like counseling all of these people and like had no one counseling me and the advice was let it keep happening give him more room and like pity him and give him like all of this negative attention and I had to go to the site pastor three times and Like, her, the second time, she said, well, maybe he likes you. And I was like, yeah, this is exactly like, mom, Billy's pulling my hair. Oh, well, he probably likes you. And so we pity and promote the abuser. And they don't learn. (laughs) They don't learn and they they don't develop their own self-esteem. And their self-esteem depends on the negative attention that they're getting from all these women who are, like, begging them to leave him alone but like not hard enough yet. They really think that they're going to push through because they've been taught that like they need to pursue and be persistent. And she might say no, but like ask her again. Don't take no for an answer. And then we have this added element of like, the Lord told me she's my wife. And it's, it's putting women in these extremely abusive situations and I would watch this guy cornering women like where they they have their backs up against the wall and they look terrified and he is, like too close and in their face and they're so uncomfortable and there would be times when like I would be walking through a crowd and like navigating it pretty well like shifting my shoulders so I'm not bumming into people and he would see me coming and I would try to slide past him and he would step back so that I would run into him. He did this, like, over and over and over again. You can't prove that a person is doing this kind of stuff on purpose. And so each time I tried to talk to anybody about it, it was like, well, he's got these things going on. And, like, he needs a friend. And, like, did you call him this week? Did you pray for him? And I was just like, I can't explain to you the anxiety that I feel when I get a text message from him at 11 p.m., And then another one at 6 a.m., well, you didn't answer me last night, so I'm hoping, like, you're okay, but, like, I need to talk to you. Dude, like, I'm asleep. Let me sleep. I just talked to you yesterday. Like, I don't have that time for you. All day, every day, accessibility, and that's what was expected of me. I'm in this situation where, like, my voice is not being heard. I'm speaking up for myself, and trying to make it better, like trying to pass them off to someone else, just trying to get him to like leave me a little bit alone, trying to instill some boundaries. And I'm not being allowed to do that. I'm being asked to like go ahead and let him keep violating my boundaries and to like recreate my boundaries so that what he's doing isn't violating them. Meanwhile, another person on my team is going through a breakup with a friend of mine and um, she gets like completely depressed and i just start checking in with her because i was like she's acting the same way that i did when i was raped and nobody would listen to me and i was silenced and i just was like are you okay and she kind of like just opened up to me about what happened and when i tried to talk to my leaders about it i was also silenced and The whole narrative was just, like, keep plugging along and, like, stay planted. And I remember, like, how many times they got up, like, every pastor there, the lead pastors, the overseas pastors, every single pastor was reminding us to stay planted. And it's it's because people were leaving for legitimate reasons. And I remember thinking, like, this is the last place I'm going to go because I've... I've left other places, and this was supposed to be the healthiest place. And this was supposed to be, like, where I could be safe and protected. And consistently hearing that, like, stay planted, stay planted, stay planted, I, like, put it on my Instagram, like, be a good tree and stay planted. And that was, like, this word that I kept getting. And I met with one of my leaders at one point, like, for coffee And it was, like, an hour of being gaslit and being told all of the things that I was doing wrong and, like, all of the reasons that I was, like, asking for what was happening to me. Everything was my fault, and I was just, like, my head was, like, spinning. It was so intense. I was late for work. My boss, like, looked, took one look at me and was like, holy crap, like, what happened? Stopped what they were doing and, like, sat down and, like, listened to me. And they were just like, you deserve better than that. I know that you don't take crap from anybody. Like, don't take crap from them. And so I'm, like, ready to leave. Like, I'm done. And I get this little message from someone overseas in my DMs. It was just, like, they liked one of my photos. And they were like, be a good tree and stay planted. And I lost my shit. (laughs) I was like... I'm the worst, like, I shouldn't be thinking about leaving, and then this is what sets people up for fawning, which is a trauma response, because you just have already been programmed to believe what you are doing is wrong, so that was, like, this word that I got, and, like, from that point on, like, I was forcing myself to go, like, I would hide out in the kids' room and, like, just watch the sermon on TV, or, like, I would only be able to stay for worship, and I would cut out. Could not interact with people. I was, like, having panic attacks going. And it was all my fault. It was all that there was something wrong with me. Until I realized, like, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's you. (laughs) So (laughs) I cried for eight days straight. And just I physically couldn't make myself go back. And that's when I just never went back. But that whole narrative of, like, staying planted by the river stay in your words, stay planted in church, it it just allows people to continue being abused and overlooked. And so reading all of these verses as, like, the whole thesis for why you should stay if you're being mistreated obviously was fairly triggering for me. Um makes me want to vomit, and it's just like at this point, like it's just clearly wrong, and it's not it's not sound theology, and you cannot claim a good God and and this theology at the same time,
0: yeah, I was just having this discussion with some friends, you know the Bible, same as poetry and songs and whatever, like it uses things we see to compare to life things, but like it would be like trees. Looking at people, being like, oh, we should be like people. People are a thing that exists on this plane. I don't have to look at a tree to know how to be a person. Like, I can look at a person to know how to be a person. But if we're going to look at trees, you know who you don't have to tell to stay planted? Trees. Trees. (laughs) They're not going
3: anywhere. I just, I think of, like, the Fantasia, like the Disney cartoons of trees that, like, walk around and their roots are, like, these, like, feet. And what's interesting is that after I left, I kept seeing everywhere that little adage, of, if you don't like where you're at, move. You're not a tree. And I was like, you're right. I'm not a tree.
0: You're not trees. I'm not
3: a tree. I don't want to be a tree. There's a reason that I'm not a tree. I love trees for who they are, and I love me for who I am, and I'm not trying to be anything else. And as
0: somebody who works with plants. Mm-hmm. Is it how much of a plant's life is it's responsibility? Like once I bring a plant so into my home.
3: The funny thing is plants and plants basically what you're getting when you get a plant and you take it into your home, you're getting like the DNA of like a type of plant. And it's going to it's going to react to the conditions that you put it in in certain ways according to its DNA. And that is metaphorical for how people are. Like, if I'm in an environment that's abusive, like, obviously I'm gonna feel anxious, I'm gonna feel crushed, and I'm not gonna flourish. So, when I'm like yelling at my plant to flourish and I'm like not watering it when it needs to be watered, I'm not fertilizing it, or it's in like the wrong kind of soil, yeah, whose fault is that? (laughs) That plant is not flourishing. (laughs) That's my fault.
0: Right. And the plant's staying there. Like, it can't go anywhere. It is, it is planted. It is
3: planted in a pot.
0: Theology goes both ways, John.
3: John.
0: <laughs> We've talked a little bit about his self-promotion, but, I mean, it doesn't get any better. And in the preface <laughs> of his book, where he says, the book you hold is quite possibly the most important the mo- confrontation. It's the
3: most important. That
0: you encounter In your lifetime. Your whole life. Not this year. Not in this season of your Christianity. Not during your stay at this church. Your lifetime. And then later, you know, this book is not a theory. It is God's word. It is God's word. Made flesh. Yep. It is Jesus.
3: I wish it made sense. I wish she could give me some meat, John.
0: Especially because if this idea of offense truly is the bait of Satan and me being offended... Could literally keep me out of heaven.
3: Dr- it drags you to hell. I just feel like
0: the actual Bible should have spent more time on it mm-hmm. or should have said those words at some point. Yeah. But to like sneak it in the back half of a random verse and wait for John Bevere <laughs> to uncover it in 1994
3: <laughs> seems a little bit malicious. God. I know, it's not very nice. It's not very clear. I think about that with scripture a lot, like clear is kind. Why is this so confusing? And frankly, this is the most scripture I've read in years in this chapter, in like at least three years. And I remembered all of it. I've read all of it before, and it was weaponized against me before, and it's being used in that exact same way. And I think, like, if we're talking about trees, I'm pretty sure Jesus says, "Don't quote me on this, but it's in it's in there somewhere that you, you'll know a tree by its fruit." So, is the fruit of staying when you've been mistreated anything good? Like, does that give life to anyone to stay?
0: It does. It does give life to someone, which to George, which goes right it <laughs> it to brought the him next joy. question. <laughs> who, who is this book for?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, short answer, it's for white Christian men in Colorado Springs, America. And it's not for me. It's not for you. Oh. <laughs> it's not for oh you goodness. and your brown skin, Janice. Uh-huh. It's for people that are being hurt and considering walking away from being hurt. He wants to catch them and say, you're wrong. And it's so it's like it's for victims, and it's to blame them for being victims. That's who it's for.
0: So from the perspective that everything is permissible, (laughs) I can't stop anybody from writing a book. I don't want to. Write what you want to write. I don't care. I I love it so
3: much that you came up with this question.
0: (laughs) Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So with 10 being beneficial to everyone, 5... It's permissible, it's there, it's neutral, it's not doing anything. And one, harmful for everyone. Where would you put this book?
3: Zero out of ten. Burn it. <laughs> if I could unread it,
0: I would unread it. <laughs> it sounds like in your offense, you dragged this book to hell.
3: I did. It can stay there. It needs to burn. It's, it's a lot of effort. It's, it's like so much effort to say the wrong thing when you could be saying all of these other things. You could be saying all of these life-giving things. You could be saying like, hey, victim, I see you. Hey, like, I'm really sorry that your pastor treated you like that. Like, can I go with you to hold this person accountable according to the Bible, according to the biblical way of doing things? Hey, survivor, I know you're like really hurting. Like, let's talk about it. What do you need? Could have been, like, so many other things besides what it is. It's worthless, and it's harmful. It's not beneficial. It's not permissible. It's actually harmful. It's in the negative. So, on a scale of one to ten, it's definitely zero. It sets it sets us back. It does, yeah.
0: So that was that was what John Bevere felt the Holy Spirit put on his heart for the world was his bait of Satan, which, again, does not make sense because nobody wants abuse or to be offended, but whatever. So he got to choose an issue as the bait of Satan. If you got to choose an issue and you got to go on the world tour, get to go into all the churches he went into and make them confront this issue, what, for you, is the bait of Satan?
3: Oh, Janice. (laughs) The bait of Satan is... It's that, like, dismissiveness towards feelings. It's, like, that dehumanization that comes along with, like, invalidation and dismissing people's feelings, which is what this book does. It it completely invalidates. If you feel offended, I don't see why that's, like, a bad thing. (laughs) Like, that's just your feeling. So I tell people to feel their feelings. 10 out of 10, can't go wrong. And we gotta like, we have to like learn to honor our feelings instead of like negating them and like trying to like work against them. Like our feelings are not trying to work against us. It's like our body's telling us what they know. So that would be my platform. And which is incidentally why I left church. The the site pastor at the church that we went to led opening statement of the volunteer prayer meeting One morning was, feelings are just feelings, and we don't pay attention to them. I was out. I was out, out. Just, that was my last straw, and I love my feelings. They're messengers, and they're important. Yeah. So,
0: he... I mean, it sucks to say undermines his own book because I mean, there's nothing to undermine. This is stupid. <laughs> but he, towards the end of that chapter, he goes into the Cain, Cain and Abel story. Yeah. He talks about Cain, what he let his offense lead him to do. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you can't build this whole book on this feeling being a sin. The issue is not. It's never what people feel. Yeah. It's what you do with it.
3: Yeah. Also. Just using that story in that context felt very confusing, of course, for me. Because it's an example of, like, again, needing attention is not bad or wrong. And he just, like, wanted approval. He was trying to figure out a way to be approved and, like, to be accepted and be acknowledged. And, like, what's wrong with that? And,
0: again, because of this inscrutable God, he cannot understand why God didn't like his thing. And then it's like, well, if God... Put him in this crucible. God, you knew how this was going to go. Couldn't you start it with a smaller
3: disapproval? Yeah, like, <laughs> it just doesn't feel very restorative to me. Supposedly, as the story goes, like, it was because God saw the condition of his heart. But, like, what was the condition of his heart? Like, insecurity? Like, that was his sin?
0: And then why, why, why was that? He,
3: but like, but why was he insecure? What was missing in his relationship with his family and God? That like didn't tell him that he was fully loved, that he had to like work for it. I don't know. I'm not trying to be like a sympathizer with him, but like I kind of, I, I think he got it a little too hard.
0: He did. If we're reading, reading the story as it has been given to us and as we've been taught to read it, why does this good God not do good things to get us where He wants us to go? Yeah. Because like you said, if the condition of His heart is insecurity, why provoke that? Why yeah, not so mean. go over the top? And love his sacrifice even more. Like,
3: oh, you tried really hard. Yeah,
0: (laughs) and I see that. Oh,
3: like you seem you seem like you're feeling a little insecure. Like, why don't we like spend some time together?
0: Nope. I don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No further comments. (laughs) Father
3: God is not happy with what you gave him.
0: Oh. All right. So the bait of Satan has been thrown to hell. We cannot recommend this book. No, please. (laughs) What is something you would recommend?
3: Okay, the book that, like, really did it for me, when we're talking about offense and sin, Amira Levine and Rachel Heller wrote a book called Attached, and it's about attachment theory as adults. It's about the way that your attachment style in childhood, like, the way that you learn to bond to your caregivers in childhood affects your adult relationships, um, particularly, like, romantic relationships, but it, it covers, like, all relationships, and... I studied child psychology in undergrad and, like, I'm getting a master's in psychology. Now I'm pretty much done and, like, I had never fully made that connection and it just, like, it draws a very clear line between, like, how you're treated in childhood and, like, how that might affect your relationships as an adult. And so while I was reading it, I think it was, like, during this particular time, the very alone part of my deconstruction, knowing that I was leaving church and not going back, the thing that kept coming to mind, because I was still very connected to my belief in God, was that fundamentally as like a creator God would would make us a certain way as like physical animals with certain needs and like biological drives it's like everything that Christianity calls a sin is really just like an attachment need wanting to be met. And we penalize it while it's like actually just us being human. And so if we can like humanize those needs, those legitimate needs, it's attachment and attention are legitimate needs. But like, you know, like what the Bevere's, the way that the Bevere's like kind of covertly talk about weight and appearance like food and clothing like those are attachment needs those are biological drives and we don't need to like demonize them and so like it really kind of like rewound my worldview of like everything being attached to I shouldn't probably use the word attached there but like everything doesn't need to be like connected to the demonic like where it's like either God or it's demonic. And so like it's it's probably just an attachment need that's asking to be met. And if we can like humanize ourselves and look at it that way, then it becomes so much less of a struggle. And it, it also just really helps us like connect with other people and have good relationships. So I highly recommend that book. It like, it really helped me. It's like a whole different worldview.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for putting yourself through that chapter. And the podcast. No, you did the podcast to yourself. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. And in closing. I am not talking
1: about seasons in which God calls individuals apart to equip and refresh them. I'm describing those who have imprisoned themselves. They wander from church to church, relationship to relationship, and isolate themselves in their own world. They think that all who do not agree with them are wrong and are against them. They protect themselves in their isolation and feel safe in the controlled environment they have set up for themselves. They no longer have to confront their own character flaws. Rather than facing the difficulties, they try to escape the test. The character development that comes only as they work through conflicts with others is lost as the cycle of offense begins again.
0: I hate this chapter so much. Maybe the most. I mean, except for last week. And until next week, every single chapter is my least favorite, but this one... It's got some bangers of bullshit, so let's get into the stats. This chapter is 10 and a half pages long. The word offended is used 13 times. The word offense is used eight times. As usual, the word offensive is nowhere to be found. But surprise, surprise, the word offend makes an appearance two times. Once in reference to the devil, he will try to offend you. And then in a scripture reference from Psalm 119, 165, where the King James uses the word offend. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. But the other translations that I looked into, the NIV, the New King James, the Message, the New Living Translation, and the Amplified all use some variation of stumble or stumbling. So common sense would say it reads more like, those that love the law won't stumble. It is doing a lot of mental gymnastics to make it seem like those who love God's law will never be offended. That's crazy on a regular day, but it seems extra stupid in this holiday season when so many Christians are constantly offended by season's greetings and the idea that people want to take Christ out of Christmas because they love the law so much. So I just can't with John Bevere. It's all just stupid. Uh In addition to stumbled, some other words I would replace offended with in this chapter are hurt, unheard, disappointed, skeptical, overlooked different, angry, confused, all legitimate feelings that deserve to be named and not painted over with the big old brush of offense. And another word I heard in my spirit a lot in this chapter was abandoned. The allegation of this chapter is that people who leave a church because they are offended with leadership, because that leadership is bad, will become spiritual vagabonds. And we're five chapters in now, so let me ask you a question. John Bevere has introduced a new word, Vagabond, do you think he defines it? If you said yes, bless your heart. Please never lose that wonder and that belief in humanity because nah, in classic JB fashion, you just gotta go with his assertion. A vagabond
1: is someone wandering from place to place, suspicious and afraid that others will mistreat you.
0: But that is not the definition. A vagabond is a person who wanders place to place without a home or job. And Faye and I talked a little bit about the concept of how vagabonds are born in John Bevere's economy. You don't just become a vagabond, no. You leave a church and you are born again as a vagabond. But I think vagabonds are born of capitalism. Vagabonds are the product of a system that says people should have homes and jobs and then doesn't provide those things for everyone and assumes everyone wants those things and makes judgments on people who don't. But a few pages into this chapter, JB says,
1: Let's face it, Jesus is the only perfect pastor.
0: And on the long list of people in the Bible who give off strong, vagabond energy, Jesus is at the top. So, seriously, John, what what are you even talking about? Anyway, the other stories he uses in this chapter are back-to-back bummers. The story of Cain, which Faye and I talked about, and then the story of Samuel. Two stories that burn the word abandonment all across the chapter for me. For the last few weeks, the story of Samuel has been hovering so sadly in the back of my mind. In Christianity, I was introduced to this story as a praise report for Hannah. She wanted children, so God answered her prayer once she promised to give the child back to him, and then she did. She took Samuel and left him at the temple, and that is low-key awful and traumatic. That is abandonment.
1: Look at the childhood of Samuel. See First Samuel 2 through 5. God, not the devil, was the one who put this young man under the authority of a corrupt priest named Eli and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests as well.
0: Y'all, those are John Bevere's own words. I want you to take off that rosy Bible filter and think about the fact that a child was left to live with corrupt and wicked priests just sit with that for a minute and think about how john bevere uses this story to say it was god who did that to say how bad things were and how it was not samuel's place to do anything
1: about it children do not correct fathers but it is the duty of fathers to train and correct the children
0: john bevere wants to use samuel as an example of knowing our place knowing that it is not our job to correct leaders As a child, no, it wasn't his responsibility to correct the corrupt priests over him. It wasn't his place. He never should have been there. And this is where those of you who still believe in the Bible need to free yourselves to read it for what it is, as it is, without the lenses we have been taught to use. Stop forcing these awful stories to be evidence of God's goodwill. Instead of reading it like, well, that's the way it went, so that was the way it had to go, you are free to read it. Please read it like, well, that's the way it went, but it didn't have to be that way. This chapter has 16 scripture references, which is just way too many, but he's trying to sell a huge theological scam, so, girl, I guess. But we are five chapters in, only a third of a way through this book, and I am so sick of John Bevere's shit. He can't even keep his story straight for one chapter. He does all this talking about
1: trees. Let's learn from the examples God gives with plants and trees. When a fruit tree is put in the ground, it has to face rainstorms, hot sun, and wind. If a young tree could talk, it might say, please get me out of here. Put me in a place where there is no sweltering heat or windy storms. If the gardener listened to the tree, he would actually harm it.
0: Y'all, he just told us to learn from trees. And then he did a tree monologue where the tree is wrong about what it wants. What the fuck, John? Are we supposed to be like trees or not? I say not. I think we should be people and trees should be trees. And as people, if you're a person who wants to be a vagabond, be a vagabond. The assumption this entire chapter rests on is that we all need to be under somebody's leadership. That we have to be in a home with a father, a gardener, a boss. But you don't being in community does not mean you have to be under leadership and being under leadership should not mean being abused or looking the other way when abusive things are happening. If your God needs bad leaders, your God is not good. And this book is not good for me, for my blood pressure. So I need to put this shit down for a few days. So that's chapter five. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I did reading that chapter. The book is a bad tree and I curse it in the name of Jesus. It should have withered and died long ago. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember that sharing is caring. Please tell your friends and or leave us a review on Apple. And remember to show some love to my guests. Hit the show notes for info on where and how to find, follow, and support them. And to check out the links to better things than the bait of Satan. Feel free to hit me via email, my DMs, or the comment section on Instagram if you have thoughts, questions, comments. And that's it for now. I am Janice Legata, and this has been an episode of Bad Words. But here are some good ones from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. She looked down into the yard. The tree whose leaf umbrellas had curled around under and over her fire escape had been cut down because the housewives complained that wash on the lines got entangled in its branches. The landlord had sent two men and they had chopped it down, but the tree hadn't died. It hadn't died. A new tree had grown from the stump and its trunk had grown along the ground until it reached a place where there were no wash lines above it. Then it had started to grow towards the sky again. Annie. The fir tree that the Nolans had cherished with waterings and manurings had long since sickened and died. But this tree in the yard, this tree that men chopped down, this tree that they built a bonfire around trying to burn up its stump, this tree lived. It lived. And nothing could destroy it.